0: Today, we finish our look at the life of Jeremiah, Um, a prophet of God set over the nations, including his own. And he was called to pluck up and to break down and to destroy and to overthrow and to build and to plant. And I just have to say that this study has probably impacted me as much as any study I've ever done uh, in sharing sermons with us on Sunday mornings. I feel in so many instances the Lord's speaking to me personally when I read these words, and I feel that it is a prophetic word for us today. I had intended to end my study last Sunday, but with the passing of our friend Wayne Williams, who has been a very real instigator in all that I've been ta- talking to you about— um, I felt that it was necessary to share this word because it is true to our conversations in the last few months. We're going to pick up today with where we left off last week after Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Jerusalem and he had carried uh, virtually everyone of significance into exile, into Babylon, and it was It was a rude awakening to their whole order of their day, of the way they worshipped, the way they lived their lives, their government, the way they extended. Everything about their culture had been shut down, obliterated, and now they were having to live a different way. And in so doing, Nebuchadnezzar set up a a governor, uh, a a local leader named Gedaliah, and we, we looked at him last week. I wish that I could tell you that under the rule and governorship of Gedaliah, that everything got better for this remnant. I wish that I could tell you that it continued to progress and it was such a blessing, but like so much of this story of Jeremiah, um, it's not that simple. It's not that straightforward. Shortly after uh, Gedaliah was set in as governor, one of his lieutenants, a man named Ishmael, A member of the royal family, a distant member, but a member who turned domestic terrorist, gathered an assassination group and went in and murdered Gedaliah and many of those that were with him at Mizpah. And it was gruesome. It was a bloodbath. Not only did he murder them, the next day a band of holy men were walking to Jerusalem to pay homage. They, had, they were in sackcloth and ashes. They had shaved their beards and their hair. They had done what was in accordance with their Jewish custom. And they were taking offerings to the temple, though it was in shambles and, and rubble. And as they're passing by Mizpah, Ishmael had not only killed Gedaliah, but he lures them to come in under the pretense that they're meeting with Gedaliah. And then he kills 70 of them. Slaughters them. And then piles their dead corpses into a cistern that had been dug by King Asa. It is a tragic scene. What makes it even more shocking is that Gedaliah had been warned that this was going to happen. Another one of his lieutenants a man named Johanan had actually warned him that Ishmael was up to this plot. And he asked him, you send me on a secret mission and I'll take Ishmael out. And Gedaliah just couldn't believe it. He was naive or trusting. He just wanted less strife and he was looking to get beyond where they had been. I don't know what his issue was, but he could not believe it. And then Ishmael did it. And so Johanan... He, he gathers all those that have survived this horrible attack and those that are in surrounding areas. And he takes after Ishmael and he, he kills many of those with him and, and chases him out of the country. And then he sets about leading this remnant of the remnant to a safe place. And we begin reading in Jeremiah 41 verse 17. And they went and stayed at Geruth-Chemhem near Bethlehem intending to go to Egypt because of the Chaldeans, for they were afraid of them because Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. Their fear is very real and it's justified. They'd seen firsthand what Nebuchadnezzar does to those who rebel against him. They've experienced it, Their city has been destroyed because of it, and they're scared he's going to do even worse to them, because the appointed king that he had set into authority had now been assassinated, and surely Nebuchadnezzar would come back and offer severe retribution, maybe complete annihilation. The safest thing to do, they think to themselves, is to escape into Egypt. That's... That's got to be the safest place to be. Now, running away into Egypt is hugely significant because it's historically symbolic. You see, Egypt was their historic place of bondage. Egypt was their very own land of slavery. Egypt was the place that God had to bring them out of. And now they're returning to bondage. They're returning to slavery. Philip Ryken said it's almost as if they were trying to undo their salvation. And when you think about how many times the prophet Jeremiah and his writings warned them continuously not to go into Egypt, you realize what a fatal mistake that they're making. They've been warned. Now, Listen. Trauma does crazy things to people. It makes you do things that are not logical, reasonable, or certainly not faith-filled. And they had been traumatized. They were scared. They were not thinking clearly. But their fight turned into flight. And they were five miles down the road before they even stopped to consider what the Lord might have wanted them to do. They hadn't sought his counsel. They hadn't checked in with him. They hadn't registered with him. Hey, Lord, what do you think we ought to do? They just went. They were on impulse. They were in survival mode. They were looking for a safe place. And apparently, they didn't know God well enough to know that he's the only safe place. And so, they head off to Egypt. But along the way, they start thinking, you know, maybe we ought to. Ask God what he thinks about this. But they don't know how. And so the only way they know is to reach out to Jeremiah, who, by the way, they've gathered with them, and he's right there. And look at Jeremiah 42 in verse 1. Then all the commanders of the forces and Johanan, the son of Kareah and Jezaniah, the son of Hoshaiah and all the people from the least to the greatest came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Let our plea for mercy come before you and pray to the Lord your God for us, for all this remnant, because we are left with but a few as your eyes see us, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. Asking God for directions is always the right thing to do. What is your purpose for my life, Lord? Where do you want me to live? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to study? Where do you want me to go to school? What job do you want me to take? Who do you want me to marry? Do you want me to marry? Do you want us to have children? These are good questions to ask of the Lord. The problem is that too many people don't start asking these questions until they're halfway to Egypt. And by the time they get around to asking him, they're really only looking for a rubber stamp of approval on the plans they've already made. We all do it, don't we? I don't want to see a show of hands. We're all prone to make plans for ourselves. And then we expect God to validate our choices after the fact rather than having asked him what we should have done in the first place. There's there's another little thing that you probably noticed as we read these verses, and that is the way they keep referring to God when they're speaking to Jeremiah. Did you notice? The Lord, your God, they keep saying. They, They didn't say, the Lord, our God. They said to Jeremiah, the Lord, your God. That's a big problem. That's an indicator of something deeper that shows where their hearts were and the fact that they didn't know God. Look how Jeremiah responds in verse 4. Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard you, behold, I will pray to the Lord your God. I will tell you. I will keep nothing from you, excuse me, I will pray to the Lord your God according to your request, and whatever the Lord answers you, (laughs) I will tell you, I will keep nothing back from you. Now, Jeremiah throws it right back at them. They're saying, Jeremiah, your God, and Jeremiah's like, nope, I'll pray to God, he's your God. I'm going to see what he has to say to you. And then verse 5, then they answer to Jeremiah, may the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word with which the Lord, your God, they still don't get it. The Lord, your God, sends you to us. Now, by this time, they begin to inch a little bit closer. Because verse 6 says, whether it is good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord, our God. I don't know what happened. I don't know if they're just trying to ingratiate themselves with the Lord in Jeremiah. But at some point, they've moved. He's now the Lord our God. And why? Well, because that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. I think it's really important to know if God is your God or not. If God is always someone else's God and not your own. That's a problem. You need to ask yourself where you're sitting today, who is God to you? Is he your God or is he the God of another? Is he God the, of the pastor? If he's, is he the God of your parents? Is he the God of your spouse? Is he the God of your children? Who is God to you? Because that really matters. It seems like this group is a little schizophrenic. They're playing this hot potato game back with Jeremiah. Your God, no, your God, no, your God. They can't decide whose God he is, which is the problem. So what is it that we have here, this scenario? We have a remnant of a remnant led by Johanan that once was led by Gedaliah. We have a group that's traumatized and scared, and they really don't understand their own hearts. And it's a group that lacks a personal relationship with God. And they've assumed that God would give them the answer they desired, and that leads them to make a covenant with God saying, Whatever you do, whatever you say, wherever you lead us, we will do and we will go. Bad mistake. No matter what you say, Lord, we want to do what you tell us to do. They didn't mean it. If this is not a picture of religious practice without a relationship, I don't know what is. It's all lip service. It's all tokenism. It's all based in in history and legacy and what our parents believed, but they don't know God. And it's obvious. Their religious response sounded really good and it would have been just fine if God would have just done what they wanted him to do. But they didn't. God didn't. God doesn't answer them the way that they want him to and they express their rebellion and their lack of relationship with him because he didn't do it the way they wanted it done. Listen to what God says to them. Down in verse 9 of Jeremiah 42, the second portion. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea for mercy before him. If you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up. And I will relent of the disaster that I did to you. Do not fear the king of Babylon. Now, what were they afraid of? The king of Babylon, that's exactly what they were afraid of. And God says, do not fear what you're afraid of, of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you. By the way, you remember, he was just God's servant. You remember that. I will grant you mercy, verse 12, and he that he may have mercy on you and let you remain in your own land. Verse 13, but if you say we will not remain in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God and saying, no, we will go to the land of Egypt where we shall not see war or hear the sound of the trumpet or be hungry for bread and we will dwell there. Sounds like a really good deal, doesn't it? No war, we get some food, we get some safety, all the things they've been missing. Looks like they'd like to have that. Verse 15, then hear the word of the Lord. If that's what you choose to do, if you choose to go, O remnant of Judah, thus says the Lord of of hosts, the God of Israel, if you set your faces to enter Egypt and go to live there, then the sword that you fear shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt, and the famine of which you are afraid shall follow close after you to Egypt, and there you shall die. Wow, stakes are really high. God is plain spoken. He makes it abundantly clear to them what they are to do and what would happen if they did and what they are not to do and also what would happen if they did. He gives the consequences associated with whatever choice that they make. I'm reminded of this. God does this all the time. He said uh, through through his servant Joshua to say to the people, See, I set before you this day life and death. Choose life. And this is what God is doing. I said before you, remnant, I know it doesn't look good. I know that you're scared. I know you're traumatized. I know that it is overwhelming to you. I realize all of those things, but if you would know me and trust me and choose to do it my way, then you will have my protection, my peace, and my prosperity. And can I say to you, that is still what God says today. There are a lot of people miserable because they've chosen the wrong thing. They picked door two when God wanted them to pick door one. Choose life. Choose to live. Choose to be with me and I'll take care of you. Don't worry about what you're afraid about. Choose me. Look what they said. Jeremiah 43 verse 1. When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people all these words, of the Lord their God, their God, With which the Lord their God had sent him to them, Azariah the son of Hoshaiah and Johanan the son of Kareah, and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, You are telling a lie. The word, excuse me, the Lord our God did not send you to say, do not go to Egypt to live there, but Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans that they may kill us and take us into exile in Babylon. Instead of submitting to God and trusting him for their protection, they became insolent and called Jeremiah the servant of God a liar. Despite that the fact that Jeremiah's record for prophecy is pretty good. I always say prophets ought to wear, you know, their percentage ranking around their neck. You know, my dad needs to have this badge so right around his neck here. I'm 89% accurate. Preachers ought to have it too, you know. I'm like 43% accurate. I miss it a lot of times. Jeremiah would have a hundred percent accurate sign around his neck. Everything he's prophesied has come to pass and they call him a liar. (laughs) And furthermore, they vowed they'd do whatever God told them to do and apparently they didn't really mean it. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, Johanan and the people respected Jeremiah enough to ask for his prayers, but they didn't trust God enough to follow his counsel. And I wonder how many times we fall prey to that. We love God enough to ask him to do something for us, but when he does it and we don't like it, we don't trust him. It never occurred to them that God's plan might be different than what they wanted him to do, that God might actually redirect them rather than stamp their plans with his seal of approval. They weren't willing to have him challenge or change their direction because they wanted him to validate their choices. A hundred years earlier, the prophet Isaiah said this. These people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Not much had changed in a hundred years. But the sad reality is that those things are still true of many of God's people today. A month ago or so, Wayne was dialoguing about these verses with me through email, and he was saying some pretty direct things as Wayne could do. And he was discussing the rebellion that's in the American model church, and he said the same attitude that's in the people here with Johannan and Johannan himself is largely evident in many churches in our country. And I tend to agree with him. He wrote me just a month ago and he said this, I believe God showed me that this remnant is, like a, is a type of the evangelical church in our nation. Like Johanan's remnant, they're looking to Egypt for wisdom and protection. They are motivated by fear and engaging in idolatry while boldly proclaiming, God, whatever you tell us to do, we will do it. But Johanan and his remnant had no intention of obeying God unless he told them something they wanted to hear. It's hard not to be impressed by Johanan and his people. I mean, actually, they're a pretty positive group in so many ways. They had welcomed refugees from Moab and Edom and for Ammon, they had shared the abundance of this harvest that was going on with a harvest of wine and summer fruits. Johanan had tried to save Gedaliah's life and warned him about this. And then when he was murdered, he rescued the smaller remnant that had been taken captive. And they even asked Jeremiah to beseech God on their behalf for God's blessing and that they would obey no matter what. That sounds like a church that I'd want to be a part of. Sounds like a pretty good church to me. Right up to the point that they called the prophet a liar. They accused Jeremiah of lying. And then, just a few chapters later, this is what they say after they've arrived in Egypt. Jeremiah forty four sixteen 16. As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. But we will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the queen of heaven... And pour out drink offerings to her as we did both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. Out of their own mouths they have indicted themselves the very same way that God has been this whole 40 year period of Jeremiah's ministry. It's hard to imagine that God would not deal with that kind of idolatry and rebellion. And that's why he did. There they were in Egypt claiming that their idolatrous acts were the very things that protected them, provided for them, and gave them safety. Rather than the Lord, their God. It's hard to imagine such words among God's people. And yet, idolatry is not simply a thing of the past. In today's church, if we choose to mix the spirit of this age with what the gospel is meaning for us, we're in trouble just like they were. Whether our mixture of the gospel is bent towards the right or the left, whether it's embracing legalism or socialism or secularism or champion nationalism or critical race theory, whether it's fighting to protect what we had or giving away everything we have because we want to be tolerant, you can't mix the gospel with philosophy of this age and not be dealt with by God. We cannot mix our obedience to the Lord with those things that are not a part of the gospel of the kingdom. And we need to be asking the Lord, which is which? If this is not what you want me to give myself to, Lord, then show me, correct me, rebuke me, deliver me from this philosophy, from this mindset, from this attack that is going on. Let me be true to your word and no one else's. As Brother Curtis recently wrote in one of his COVID era emails, how many get those? Yeah, they're great. If you don't get them, check with Curtis. He said, the war continues between what we think we know and Jesus' simple call to follow him. And by the way, what we think we know, simply because it did it last time, he did it that way, doesn't mean he's necessarily going to do it this way, this time. I got that backwards. This time, this way. So here's my question for us today, and I've tried to honor the memory of Wayne, and tried to... Respond well to the words of Jeremiah. In what things are we halfway to Egypt before we even consider what God thinks about it? Where in our life have we started on a route and we never consulted with him? What decisions have we made where we never asked his input? And when we hear his word, When we hear them, do we repent and return or do we stubbornly continue doing it our own way? What idols have we kept for ourselves thinking they're producing what we really need, our security, our provision, our safety? What idols have we kept for ourselves rather than trusting and obeying the Lord? My prayer for us in this study is that these stories would speak to us today and that they may bring us into a place of repentance, not just what happens at the altar, but a life of repentance, of returning to him every day, of returning to him in every decision, of returning to him in everything we're doing, not reserving anything for ourselves not holding him at arm's length in any area of our life, but we would let him touch it and correct it and even rebuke it and then heal it and restore it and use us once again. The world needs a people who have no idols before their God, but rather are true to what the Lord has called them to be. May these stories lead us into a lifestyle of repentance. And may we trust him with our whole heart. And may we serve him and his purpose in our own generation.
1: Amen. I feel like these words in Jeremiah have been so recalibrating. The definition of the word recalibrate is to ascertain the caliber, measure, or worth of something. To measure it precisely against a standard. To determine the deviation from the standard so that the correction or the corrective measure can be determined. Mm -hmm. And finally, to adjust precisely for a particular function. That's awesome. We are being recalibrated. Yeah. He has given us the plumb line of the word. Every single one of these messages in Jeremiah has been a very distinct line. And we have such an incredible opportunity to agree with him about where the line is and let him amend us and adjust us and recalibrate us. Yes, that's good. In Hebrews 12, he says, Now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens, meaning everything, (laughs) everything in your world he's going to shake. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. That is, created things so that what cannot be shaken will remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. He is bringing his kingdom to bear in us that can't be shaken. Let us be thankful and worship God acceptably for our God is a consuming, a recalibrating fire.
0: Amen. Let's pray together.
1: Father, we are so grateful for your discipline for your correction, because it comes from nothing but love and goodness towards us. The kind intention of your will does not change. And you discipline those you love. And so we receive it as loved ones today. Anything you're touching, that you are shaking, Lord, we want to be corrected. We want to be able to say yes to your plumb line, even if it feels very far from where we are.
0: Yes,
1: Lord. Father, thank you for teaching us the truth and for not letting us get away with believing a lie. Thank you that you speak until we hear and you don't mind repeating yourself. I ask that you would write these words from Jeremiah on our hearts. And that when you come to us in any moment, offering us life or death, that you would enable us to choose life, to see the difference, to understand the difference, and to make the choice, the choice for you, the choice that says, yes, God, because you alone are God. And you have the right to rule over us in any way you see fit. Yes, Lord. We receive your good care yes, and the discipline that proves to us we are loved sons and daughters. Amen. In Jesus' name.
0: Lord, we know the promise of Jeremiah that you gave to him is that you would, you would make a new covenant with us. You'd put it within our hearts you'd, you'd write your law not on tablets of stone but on hearts of flesh you would be our god and no one would have to instruct us we could know you we could know you intimately personally it's a relationship that we could walk into not a set of facts we have to memorize so i pray for us in this day in this season And this period that we find ourselves in, a moment in time, but a significant time. I pray that you would help us to return to you in all areas of our lives. Any idol that we've propped up, that we've given ourselves over to, that we've given allegiance to or resources or energy to, would you point it out to us in Jesus' name? Point it out. Speak as clearly to us as you spoke to them. Help us see where we have fallen short so that we might have the opportunity to repent and return and receive your forgiveness. I pray, Lord, that we as a church community would have the fullness of your love and your truth. We would have Jesus at the center of everything, not just our Redeemer, not just our Savior, but our King who leads us in the way everlasting. I pray for God, for us, God, that we would obey you in these days and that the marking of our church community, of our families, of our small groups, of our youth group, of every aspect of our church community would be these words that you've given us through Jeremiah, that we would return to you and find the power of God being realized in our lives. Help us, O Lord
1: change us oh God in Jesus name